Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 9 through 16. Please read with me the verses in bold. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, I'm sorry. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, Merry Christmas. And uh, we're, almost the, we're almost there, the season of Advent, the season of anticipating Christ's coming. And it's a, a particularly unique end to Advent this year because the fourth Sunday of Advent and Christmas Eve are the same day. And so uh, today, uh, the, today's the last of our Advent Sunday gatherings and the last part of our Advent sermon series we've called A Great Light. We've been looking at different famous passages uh, from the, uh, the prophet Isaiah uh, that we'll often hear at Christmas time and think of as referring to Jesus, although they were all written something like 400 years before his birth. So this morning, uh, a sign of Emmanuel from Isaiah chapter 7. There's lots of reasons, uh, I think even sort of seeping into a a, a children's time even to remember uh, that there's lots of reasons to be anxious at Christmas time. I've got friends this year who will celebrate uh, for the first time without mom. Another who was deported and will not uh, be able to celebrate with those who he hoped to be with. But friends watching social media this uh, holiday season hoping to catch uh, some kind of update about how their prodigal child is doing. And a friend who got a pink slip at the company Christmas party. I saw a picture this week, and it was entitled Christ in the Rubble. And it was a nativity scene. It had Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, but they were pictured in the midst of the, of the rubble, uh, of rubble like bombed out buildings, reminiscent of what's happening in Israel and Gaza as we speak. There's plenty of reasons to be anxious, plenty of reasons to be fearful this Christmas. And there was much to fear 2,000 years ago as well, certainly much to fear for a poor, homeless, refugee, teenage mother in Palestine, a girl who was on the run for her life and for the life of her baby almost as soon as he was born. This is the girl that 
Palestinian refugee uh, whom the gospel of Matthew speaks of in his nativity story. In Matthew uh, chapter 1, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So there was much to fear when Mary gave birth to Jesus, but there was actually a lot going on, plenty to be anxious about 735 years earlier when the prophet Isaiah wrote this famous passage. You see, Matthew was just quoting from Isaiah. Uh, in, in fact, uh, Matthew chapter 1 says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7 is part of a bigger story, and it involved the, the people of Judah and their king, King Ahaz, and Ahaz had uh, forsaken the legacy of his great-great-great-grandfather, King David, who was a godly king, and Ahaz uh, had led God's people into idolatry, and his wicked reign was now being threatened, as Isaiah writes to him, two kings are threatening uh, to invade Judah. Rezin, the king of Syria, and uh, Pekah, the king of Israel, had joined together and were amassing troops for an invasion. And that's what we read this morning in verse 9, where it says, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. It's referring to these warring kings coming to their border. And there was fear in Judah. And so Isaiah the prophet is sent by God to speak to Ahaz, the king. And he tells Ahaz that God will deliver him. Ahaz, uh, Isaiah encourages Ahaz that uh, the answer is to stand firm in his faith and to lean back into following the God of Israel and to ask God for help. He says, Isaiah says to Ahaz, you should ask God for a sign. He wants to show you that he is with you. We read, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Ask for a sign of the Lord, whether it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But rather than asking God for help, Ahaz was working on a military alliance with Assyria. He's entangling himself further and indebting himself to another pagan nation. Ahaz didn't want God's help. He didn't want to admit he was wrong. He didn't want to worship God in his heart, but he found a way to sort of humbly, say fake humbly, quote scripture and refuse God's offer. And we read in verse 12 today, it says, but Ahaz says, I will not ask. I won't put the Lord to the test. But God gave him a sign anyway. And the sign wasn't just for him. It was also for the entire nation that he led that was paralyzed with fear as armies amassed on their borders. And the sign that God gave wasn't a street sign. It wasn't a billboard. It wasn't a Dutch oven or a pair of hockey gloves. His solution for Ahaz was not a military strategy. It wasn't a change of government. God promises a person, a baby, actually, and God's promise through Isaiah 7, like much of Old Testament prophecy, had an eminent and an ultimate 
fulfillment. This is what I mean, that prophecies in Scripture often have an immediate fulfillment, something that takes place in the moment or uh, context of historical history that they're uh, spoken into, and also an ultimate way in which they point us to Christ and to the way that God's promises are fulfilled ultimately and fully only in the person of Jesus. So you might say that promises have a near and a far fulfillment quite often, or a, uh, an, an immediate and an ultimate fulfillment. And so this morning I'd like to take a look at the immediate and ultimate fulfillment of the prophet's words in Isaiah chapter 7, and how the sign of Emmanuel is intended by God to provide us with immediate care for our anxiety and for the fear that we face but also how it is our ultimate hope in a world that challenges people who are hopeful. And so this morning, Isaiah seven fourteen, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Immediate and ultimate fulfillment. The word that is translated virgin in Isaiah seven fourteen is the Hebrew word Alma, which can have several meanings. It could mean a young unmarried woman, or it could have the more technical meaning of a, a virgin, a woman who has had not had uh, a sexual experience. These were often interchangeable meanings when Hebrews were using the word. Uh, that is to say, usually those two were the same. It seems that there was such a woman. She doesn't get named, but it seems that in the context of Isaiah chapter 7, that both Isaiah and King Ahaz knew, knew of a woman, unmarried and without children. And while the king is staring down the barrel of what he is certain will be the end of the world and the end of his kingdom as armies amass on his borders, Isaiah's word from God is that in less time than it will take for this young woman to marry, conceive, give birth, and wean a child, God will have done away with his enemies. While Isaiah 7 never mentions that woman by name, uh, we can know two things from Scripture. First, in Isaiah uh, chapter 8, verse 3, we're told that Isaiah takes a wife, a prophetess, and that she conceived and bore a son, and the, it says there, the Lord said to me, call his name Mahar Shalal Baz, Mahar Shalal Hajbaz. And it says, before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away. We also know that less than three years after Isaiah's prophecy in chapter seven, Damascus had been destroyed and Samaria had been plundered. So, in less than three years, Isaiah takes a wife, he has a baby, they name the kid Mahar Shalal Hazbaz, but they call him Manny, which is short for Emmanuel. Because God gave an immediate sign that even when his people were under siege, that he had not left them, that he had not forgotten them and that he would be with them just like Isaiah said he would. So what's happening in the Gospel of Matthew then? 
Is Matthew just uh, vaguely searching for vaguely matching verses in the Old Testament and then projecting a virgin birth, the virgin birth of Christ onto what Isaiah was saying? I don't think so. You see, Matthew knows Hebrew. He knows the Hebrew word that Isaiah used could have had multiple interpretations. And so when he quotes Isaiah in the Greek, uh, which is the way all of the book of Matthew was written in Greek, he chooses very specifically which uh, translation, which interpretation of that word he intends to use. And he uses the Greek word parthenos, which can only mean the technical medical uh, definition of virgin, a woman who has had no sexual experience. He wants to be very clear about how much of a miracle Jesus' birth really was. Matthew's testimony of Jesus' miraculous conception shows that he understands that Jesus' coming is an ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, that this is what Isaiah was pointing to when he spoke these words, the, the real fulfillment towards which that immediate fulfillment was only a sign, only an indication. When Matthew encounters the evidence of Jesus' birth to a virgin, a miraculous conception by the power of the Holy Spirit, he realizes that there was more to what Isaiah was saying than maybe even Isaiah realized when he said it. Matthew was telling us that Isaiah, whether he knew it or not, was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he spoke those words and was ultimately speaking about the Messiah. That when Maher Shalal Hazbaz was born in 731 BC, it was an indication, an encouragement to God's people that he was with them like he said he would be. But it was only a sign. He was pointing them towards a day when this prophecy would ultimately be fulfilled, completed, accomplished, realized in the conception and birth of Jesus the Messiah from the Virgin Mary, when God would not just tell us that he was with us or give us some encouragement, but that when he would dwell with us in the flesh. This is God's provision for immediate care for people living in a fearful world. Emmanuel, God with us. Through the, the scripture, throughout the scripture, God's promise to be present and with his people is an antidote to fear. When people are afraid, he says things like, fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Throughout the scripture, God's presence with his people is a reason to have courage. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God's presence with his people is a sign of his protection. For he himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. In the Michigan winter, I learned to ice skate on the frozen marina of Stony Creek in Utica. 
I was scared of falling. I was scared of hurting myself. I was scared of embarrassing myself. And I was scared that the ice might be too thin, that we'd fall through. But I wasn't scared when Grandpa let me wear his hockey gloves and went out on the ice with me. What if Ahaz had been confident of God's presence with him when he faced Damascus in Syria? What if he could have faced his enemies without fear, confident of God's protection? What if, what if, what would it change in our lives if I actually believed that Christ came in person, God was in flesh 2,000 years ago, but not only that, but that he is with me today. On, with me in some important, uh, real way on the first Christmas without mom. How would it change things if I knew he was with me? Or how would it change uh, how I waited by social media for, to hear from a son or a daughter? How would it change things if we truly believed and knew that Christ had come to be with us and that he remains by his Holy Spirit present with his people? Well, I, I would say that one of the indications that that is true is that one of the simplest and most profound ways that followers of Christ have changed the world and changed history is simply by their presence, by being willing to be places where no one else would be, to be with others when others were afraid to remain, to be in the presence of sickness or holding hands while people died, listening and responding when no one else would. Uh, when people live with the confidence that not only God is with them, but that uh, come what may, they will be with God. They are able to be in places and listen to things where other people are unwilling to be and hear things that others want to ignore. A sign of Emmanuel is a sign of our immediate care from God. But it's also the sign of our ultimate hope. There's two really big words in this uh, verse in, uh, in Isaiah uh, 7, 14. Uh, two really big words, virgin and Emmanuel. Both of them are essential to understanding how Jesus' birth is the center of the ultimate hope that's promised to Christians. First, virgin. The virgin birth is more than a magic trick. It's more than a mystical detail or, uh, or, or some kind of extra... Uh, extra uh, whistle about Jesus being magic. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us that the virgin birth is essential because it demonstrates that Jesus was both truly human and truly divine. If Jesus had not been born of a human, developed in his mother's womb like you and I, we would not be able to believe in his full humanity. But if his birth were like any other human birth through the union of a human father and mother, then we would question his divinity. And one of the things that it means 
uh, is that Jesus, when he was born, didn't inherit the curse of depravity that every other human receives at birth. He was born without sin. The scripture tells us that amongst all of the other things that we inherited from our parents, our eyes, their nose, their sin. Jesus was made like us in every way except for sin, the book of Hebrews tells us. Every human father begets a son or a daughter and gives to them his sin nature. We may not understand completely how this works, but this is our experience in the world, and Scripture tells us that this is the way of the world since the fall in Genesis. Sinners beget sinners. But only a sinless Savior could atone for sin by giving himself for us. The virgin birth tells us that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine, born without sin with the ability to deal with our sin. Emmanuel. Matthew's narrative is a bit curious uh, for choosing this passage and then sort of adjusting it. Listen to this. It says in, verse, uh, in Matthew 1, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Moving on, it says that when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. But they didn't name him Emmanuel. They called his name Jesus. Earlier, the angel had appeared to Mary and, she, and said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Not Emmanuel, not Mahar, Mahil. I go back in my notes. Not Emmanuel, God with us, but Yeshua, Yahweh saves. Why the discrepancy? Well, God with us is only good news if God has come to save, if he's come to atone for sin. Had Mary's son been named just Emmanuel, it would have left a question mark after that. God with us, but why? Has he come to condemn us? Has he come to bring judgment? But by naming this child Jesus, instead of a question mark, there's an exclamation point. He shall, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God has come to be with us. And for those who will accept this sign and believe he sits with us, he's present with you at the first Christmas without mom, comforts and waits as you wait for an update from a kid. But he came for more than to just be with us in that difficulty. He came to make a way for us to be with him, to save us from our sin by giving himself in our place on the cross and promising to return one day to make all things new. No more relationships broken by sin. No more saying goodbye and holding up hockey gloves. No more bombed out buildings. 
but God with us.